we can imagine that, that well, it's a definition of what we ought to do when we pray. Hear something from God, you know, and really hear these words because that's what Jesus wants us uh, to hear in our own prayer uh, is ourselves directly addressed by the Father of Jesus, whom Jesus has made our Father. Welcome back to the Theology of the Eucharistic Table podcast with Abba Jeremy Driscoll and seminarians of Mount Angel. Abba Jeremy is teaching four of us seminarians how the celebration of Mass informs our theology, a method which he calls Theology at the Eucharistic Table, and we invite you to join us in our discussions. If you learned from this podcast, we ask you to leave a review on iTunes, to like and share our Facebook page, to subscribe to our newsletter at theologyatmountangel.com, that's theologyatmtangel.com. And to personally invite a seminarian, a priest, a seminary professor, or a close friend to listen to our show. We hope you enjoy. Okay, so we were cut off uh, for a lack of time, and I was just on the verge of saying we've got to look at... Uh, to understand the baptism in each of the evangelists, we also need to look at what, what they do immediately after. All three of them show Jesus being led by the Spirit into uh, the desert to be tempted. But then after the temptation is when Jesus uh, comes back to Galilee and begins his active ministry. And uh, so the baptism is meant to be a kind of prelude to the active ministry. So what do you see in the active ministry? You see the man of, uh, upon whom the Spirit descended and who is declared to be the beloved Son of the Father, and the Father is pleased in him. You see him fight with Satan and be victorious, and then goes about Galilee saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. So that's, that really strengthens, you see, the whole ministry of Jesus. Uh, the whole ministry of Jesus, if you will, is going to be a manifestation of, oh, what's it look like to be the beloved son of the Father? Uh, what's it look like when the Holy Spirit anoints somebody? What's it look like when somebody sees the heavens open? Uh, and it looks like everything that Jesus does and ultimately what it looks like is the baptism of Jesus, not by John, but the baptism that he longs to receive, namely his death on the cross, which that's what fulfills all righteousness. Uh, so that's how you, you know, you, we're, yeah, we're talking about the baptism of Jesus, but it makes no sense without where it comes from and where it's going. And that's, that's all of its profound effect. The, the temptation of, uh, narrative coming right after um, connects to what you just said earlier about Matthew's account and how you mentioned that Christ is, you know, coming down among sinners and 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 you know experiencing everything we experience in a way. And so, not only in the baptism, but now we're talking about the temptation, how we're tempted into sin and we have temptation. So Christ isn't above temptation. It really shows how he really did come down among us and become one of us. And, and that was when I was reading, reading it before the, 
podcast, um, Luke's account of how, you know, Christ is tempted by Satan. And, and when Satan says, you know, I'll give you dominion over all the kingdoms of the world. It really made me think about how we are in this battle between good and evil because Satan does have control of a lot of the things of the world, but that, that Christ, Christ is able to overcome that and us through our baptism into Christ are also able to co- overcome evil. I'm so, so both the remembering of that, you know, we do have this fight with evil, but that in Christ we're able to overcome that. This is sort of a side comment, but related to that, that specific temptation. Um, Origins got like this little commentary where he says that when, when Satan, after this baptism, when Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, he's not just offering him like kingdoms in general. He's, he's offering him a world in sin. He's saying, look at all these people I've enslaved. You can have them right now, right here. If you will just worship me, you will just bow down before me in adoration. And of course, that's what Jesus has come for. You know, he's going to take this kingdom of sinners to set them free. So in a way, Satan's offering him like a shortcut. He's saying, well, you know what, you know, just here, here it goes. Your job's cut, job's cut out for you. Just worship me. Um, but then again, Jesus is, is not only about freeing sinners. It's how he's going to free sinners that makes the difference. And it's not by taking shortcuts, not by taking the easy way out, not by disobeying God. And then sort of, Abba Jeremy just said, what does it look like when the Spirit comes down upon you when the heavens are open? Um, so what is it going to look like for Jesus to free sinners, free the kingdom of Satan from his grasp? Well, that's what he's going to show afterwards now. Let's go to Luke, uh, because uh, by now we'll see that Luke really adds a lot of amazing stuff. Luke also has a long uh, infancy account, um, beautifully developed, uh, in which there's no question that the spirit is, is involved with Jesus uh, from, from conception. Uh, so the, the question provoked by any subordinationism, is that's, that's Luke's way uh, of answering it. Uh, Luke has a much more uh, vivid beginning of the time around John the Baptist and Jesus with a very lengthy uh, description of John's preaching ministry and crowds of people coming uh, to John. Uh, We have more information in, this is the beginning of chapter 3 of Luke's Gospel, much more information about John's ministry from Luke than we have from either Matthew or Mark. And in that context, there are just a few short verses in Luke that describe Jesus' baptism. Here they are. This is at verse 21 in chapter 3. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove, the voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. That's it. That's all there is. 
Now, a few things to notice about that, and having read the other two texts by now will help us to notice it. Uh, Luke emphasizes crowds of people coming to be baptized and, and in a sense, skips over the actual baptism uh, of John, of Jesus by John. It's just, again, uh, probably to sort of soften any risk of subordinationism. It just says uh, when all the people had been baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, he was praying. So Jesus's experience is not at the baptism itself. It's after he's baptized and he's praying. Uh, and Luke will show us other instances where he's praying, perhaps praying alone. It's at prayer and of the, of the four evangelists, it's Luke who shows us Jesus at prayer more than the others. So, uh, so at prayer, Jesus sees the heaven open and the Holy Spirit descend upon him. The language is similar, but we have uh, a little bit more forceful in bodily form as a dove. In bodily form as a dove. And then the voice from heaven is again direct address to Jesus, probably because he's at prayer. And but what we can do with this is we can interpret it as uh, Jesus's prayer experience is a, is a place where he hears the words from his father, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Uh, so this is, this is the first time of a number of times in Luke's gospel where we're going to see Jesus at prayer. And we have the content of his prayer, which is not what he's saying, but what he hears. And you, we, can, we can do a lot with that, you know. We can imagine that, that, well, it's a definition of what we ought to do when we pray. Hear something from God, you know. And really hear these words, because that's what Jesus wants us uh, to hear in our own prayer, uh, is ourselves directly addressed by the Father of Jesus, whom Jesus has made our Father. Uh, anyhow, that's just developing where you can go with that for our own personal life. But just what, here in the gospel, what we have is a very intense experience uh, for Jesus of himself at prayer. How does it strike you? What do you make of it? Yeah, <clears throat> there's a lot there. First thing that came to mind was a book called priest as beloved son that we first read in our call, cultivating the priestly heart of Jesus class and first theology, how the priest is first and foremost, the, a son of God, a son of the father. And so priestly formation is first and foremost, receiving that identity in a deeper and deeper way. And I, I hadn't, connected that with prayer in I mean generally in prayer yes but not in Jesus at prayer and particularly in Jesus at prayer in this scene so if yeah. Jesus is to well then it gets tricky here because it's not like Jesus is receiving his identity there but mm -hmm. for Jesus his identity is being revealed to Israel but for us if we're to follow Jesus' example of how to receive our identity. If he's doing that by 
being in prayer and in that receiving those words, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It should only follow that. That is how we receive our identity. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if, I don't know if this is right, but I'm not sure I would say that we receive our identity in prayer, but we, we come to understand it more because really we receive our identity as sons of God in baptism. Um, but then I really like, and I, and when I read Luke, I really noticed that as well as how, and, and like you already said, Luke is always emphasizing prayer and Jesus at prayer. But I think that understanding of coming to understand our identity as sons in prayer and listening, listening to the father say that to us and really coming to believe that and understand that is really an important, important aspect of prayer and I guess of coming to understand our own baptism. Just while I think to say it, uh, a scene of course that, uh, parallels this in all three of the synoptics halfway through on Jesus' way to his ultimate baptism and the death on the cross. Uh, A scene that parallels this is the transfiguration uh, where the words are similar. Uh, But uh, if we were comparing the the synoptic texts on transfiguration, we would see that the transfiguration in Luke is also Jesus at prayer. So that's kind of fun. Uh, but let's not go there. Just wanted to get that in in case I forgot to say it. Uh, but uh, here's another very interesting thing. I said that all three of these evangelists, uh, after, after the baptism of Jesus, have him going into the desert. Uh, Luke does too, except that uh, that's the next thing that happens to Jesus. But Luke inserts the genealogy of Jesus at this point. Uh, before uh, the temptation in the desert. Now, the genealogy of Jesus is not an event. It's just more information about Jesus. But uh, so that's striking too. After the words, you are my beloved son, on you my favor rests, the next words from Luke are, when Jesus began his work, he was about 30 years of age, being, so it was supposed, the son of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Matha, son of Levi, and the genealogy begins. And uh, the genealogy that we have in Matthew starts, starts with the ancestors of Jesus working down all the way to Joseph as a son of David. The genealogy that we have in Luke goes backwards. And so uh, we have Jesus who was baptized and had this intense experience And then we have him uh, supposed to be the son of Joseph. And then moving backwards through all those ancestors. And it finishes with, at verse 38, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. So it's showing uh, beautifully here uh, the, uh, the origins of the human race in the image of God. And uh, it, it sort of puts the figure of Jesus uh, intentionally in a, 
we can call it a cosmic context. The whole of humanity is summarized in this man. And the whole of humanity is summarized in this man. And then we have the temptation in the desert. This is how Luke uh, introduces the temptation in the desert. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, then returned from the Jordan and was conducted by the Spirit into the desert. Just like stressing, you know, the Spirit came down upon him at baptism in bodily form. Jesus is full of the Spirit, so returns from the Jordan to Galilee, and the Spirit conducts him. It's a strong word, just like the Spirit is in charge here, pulls him into the desert. It's like the Spirit is saying, now start being the Messiah and fight Satan. <laughs> Knock him down. Good. No problem here. You're full of the spirit. That sort of stuff, you know. So all of that is what we can do with the baptism of Jesus. We see how in all three of the evangelists now, they very carefully use the baptism to start Jesus' ministry as this powerful manifestation. I have a, a question, and maybe, you know, I need to answer it directly, but just something, maybe you can weave it into subsequent thoughts and, and responses about the, our broader theme of theology at the Eucharistic table. So how, you know, how is the celebration of the Eucharist informing our understanding in these areas? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I would say, first of all, uh, we could go to the Feast of the Baptism of the Lord itself and what the liturgical texts say and do there. And we would begin, of course, with the Liturgy of the Word. Uh, the Liturgy of the Word, the other readings, and the, you know, the, the way that works is uh, uh, year A, B, and C. And you, we in year A, we would read Matthew's account of the baptism. Year B, we would read Mark. And year C, we would read Luke. But um, the first and second readings are always the same, even though there are options. And those first and second readings are, are very instructive. So uh, I'll get to the second part of the Mass, the Eucharist, in, in a minute. But you don't get there to answer your question without saying, oh, well, what's going to happen to this assembly in the Liturgy of the Word on that day? Because the Liturgy of the Word, remember from Theology at the Eucharistic Table, the sacrament, the sacramental celebration will manifest in its own way and on an even, even deeper level what the event character of the proclamation of the Word is. But what the first reading uh, on, on the baptism of the Lord is from chapter 42 of Isaiah. And uh, it begins like this. Thus says the Lord, here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one with whom I am pleased, upon whom I have put my spirit. He shall bring forth justice to the nations. Well, this is thrilling to hear these words after we've carefully examined the gospel. Uh, he said, you hear so much in these words. What we could say it is, it's an, ex- it's an expansion of the Father's short little word about Jesus, whether he says, you are my beloved son, in you I'm well pleased, or this is my beloved son. Either way, 
you know, it's a very short statement in the evangelist of what Jesus, uh, of what uh, the Father says. Instead, this text of Isaiah is showing us, hey, he's, that could be said at greater length. And that's why I love this first reading on the Feast of the Baptism, because you're hearing the Father saying this to Jesus. Jesus is the one that is being spoken of here. And very explicitly, with whom I am well pleased, upon whom I have put my spirit, uh, who shall bring forth justice to the nations by being baptized, thus it is fitting, all, fulfill all righteousness. See the, the link of those themes. And, and it keeps on going. And in, if we have in our minds some of the thoughts we had in our last session, uh, that this is a baptism. Jesus' baptism is a prophecy of the cross. Then we're already talking about the cross in this text. I, the Lord, have called you for the victory of justice. I have grasped you by the hand. I formed you and set you as a covenant of the people. All of this is the language that we will use, that Jesus himself will use uh, around his cross. And so the scriptural texts themselves uh, are already there uh, doing that. Um, the responsorial psalm that follows this is magnificent because uh, the verse is, it's from Psalm 29. And Psalm 29 is God, to, uh, it, it's, it's chosen for this reason. Listen to, the, to the, the, the verse. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The Lord over the vast waters. The voice of the Lord is mighty. The voice of the Lord is majestic. This is a description of the Father's voice over the waters of baptism, saying, you are my beloved son. This voice is majestic. This voice is mighty. The God of glory thunders, and in his temple all say glory. Uh, marvelous, marvelous text. Uh, so that's the, a very strong prelude to hearing the gospel announced. And then you have uh, the second reading is from the Acts of the Apostles, uh, which is part of Peter's preaching to Cornelius. Uh, but it, 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 the reason it's chosen is because uh, Peter is summarizing very briefly the whole story of Jesus so that he can announce Jesus crucified and risen to Cornelius. I'm a little disappointed that the text cut off before that because uh, it didn't need to, uh, but it, this is chapter 10 of Acts. Uh, but he's saying, I take it you've heard of what has happened all over Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. Uh, so just saying that's where evangelization begins with John's baptism, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And three verses later, Peter is going to say, uh, he was crucified and God raised him up. So both of these texts are very helpful theologically to get us to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That being said, then how do we celebrate the Eucharist that day? What is the meaning of Eucharist on that day? And the meaning of Eucharist on that day is going to be the sacrament declares in its own way at an even deeper level what 
uh, as Jesus gives us his body and blood, as his body and blood is offered by the church uh, through, through the Eucharistic prayer, what's happening? This is Jesus, the beloved son, with his church pleasing the father. Uh, this is Jesus uh, fulfilling all righteousness. This is Jesus fulfilling the text, my servant whom I uphold, upon whom I have put my spirit. All that is happening in the Eucharistic prayer. And, and we have communion in all that. Uh, when, when we receive communion, that's what we have communion in that. And you have the communion antiphon that day, if, if we were singing it, uh, that's why it's so important to, to musically that we try to develop in the church music to be uh, the communion antiphon ideally on that day would be behold the one of whom John said I have seen and testified that this is the son of God and this is being sung by the congregation as we're receiving the body and blood of Christ behold the one of whom John said this is the son of God and the church it, it, the church, by its action of singing and by its procession and by the reception of the body and blood of the Lord, the church is just totally inside the event of Jesus's baptism, which is not in the past. It's, a, it, it's an epiphany now of who he is and what his real baptism is. Uh, his real baptism is going to death. And the, the, the heavens open when he goes to death. And the spirit comes down upon him when he goes to death. And the father's voice raises him, saying, Beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This is what raises Jesus from the dead. Paul is preaching this way uh, in chapter 13 of the Acts. Paul is announcing Jesus risen from the dead, and he's thus is fulfilled the psalm. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The same thing that Paul has no interest in Jesus' baptism, but he doesn't use it theologically. But he does use the you are my son in whom I'm well pleased as, uh, as, as what raises Jesus from the dead. So that's theology at the Eucharistic table again. All right, that's the way it works. You've pointed a couple of times in class, you reminded us that when we look at our encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist, we maybe we tend to focus on you know our own growth as we live our lives as Christians and continue to receive the Eucharist, how we change and how the Eucharist changes us, how Christ changes us. But you also pointed out that you know every reception of the Eucharist is an it's a sort of a new encounter with Jesus too. So when I received the Eucharist this morning, I'd never encountered Jesus that way in my life. Yeah. Um, not that that's the first time Jesus had been in the Eucharist. It's just that yeah. it's a new day. It's yeah. a new. So it's a day that was never before. Yeah. And on this day, I have encountered Jesus in the Eucharist. So that every time we receive the Eucharist, there's a real encounter with Christ, mm -hmm. a real personal encounter with Christ, to use that phrase. Um, and that encounter, that new encounter with Christ that receiving the Eucharist is, depends on who 
Jesus is revealed in the baptism too. So it's because the Father has identified him and said, that's my son, that what we say about the Eucharist makes any sense, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. Um, that's another, I think that's a, maybe that's another way we can link those two moments of, of, of the liturgy, but also just of, of the scriptures, that what's going to happen at the cross, what's going to happen at the Eucharist, those moments in Jesus' life, they're sort of validated out of the way at the beginning because Jesus is the Son of God, because yeah. the Father says, this is my Son. Um, so again, I guess just trying to say that the whole life of Jesus, whether it's you know the night of the Last Supper or the crucifixion or the Eucharist, they're all kind of really deep inside Jesus as being the Son. They're really deep inside the fact that this is the one who lives in the bosom of the Father. I mean, that's where we're taken in the Eucharist. Yeah, it, it just worth saying again, what do we have here? We have the manifestation of the Trinitarian mystery. Uh, you know, this, this, is, this is, who is Jesus? Son. If he's son, then who is God? Father. Who is present to help us understand that and to know that? Spirit. And uh, those three that are so active and clear in the, in, the, in the scene of the baptism in the scriptural text, well, this too is the shape of the Eucharistic prayer to the Father, that the Spirit be sent to transform our gifts into the body and blood of the Lord. Uh, it's just, it's, it's too good. The, the preface uh, for the feast is also worth looking at, you know, because this is a, just according to our method, uh, you ask Nelson, how can we apply the method of theology at the Eucharistic table? One of the ways you're going to make a link between the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist is with the preface, which is the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer. Um, actually, we could look also uh, at the prayer over the gifts, which is interesting on this day. In a, uh, let me read it and you'll see why it's interesting. Accept, O Lord, the offerings we have brought to honor the revealing of your beloved Son, so that the oblation of your faithful may be transformed into the sacrifice of him who willed in his compassion to wash away the sins of the world, who lives and reigns forever and ever. You see how the, the, the language of the church's prayer is just echoing uh, various of the scenes we have here. Uh, but it, it, it's to honor, it says, the revealing of your beloved son. That's sort of interesting. It doesn't say to honor the baptism, but it interprets the baptism. The revealing of your beloved son. And uh, so that the oblation of your faithful may be transformed into the sacrifice of him. Uh, so we're using the word sacrifice just as we enter into the Eucharistic prayer uh, of him who, who willed in his compassion to wash away the sins of the world. So that's him in his compassion saying to John, let it be so for now. Let me stand in solidarity with sinner. Let me wash, be washed with a, with a baptism of repentance. And that will wash away the sins of the world. It's, there's a lot of echoes that we're meant to, to take from that. 
And then we go into the prayer, the preface, after the initial beginning, it is truly right and just to give you um, thanks and praise or duty and salvation. Anyhow, here's the middle part, the, the unique part. For in the waters of the Jordan, you revealed with signs and wonders a new baptism. What's new? John's is a baptism of repentance, but uh, uh, John himself and, and the evangelist John will stress this. He baptized you. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The baptism in the Holy Spirit is the definitive baptism. The, the water baptism of John is due to pass away. So this is called by the preface, a new baptism. So that the voice that came down from heaven, so that through the voice that came down from heaven, we might come to believe in your word dwelling among us. So that's a lot of interpretation going on there. That the voice, we, we give you thanks, Father. Remember, we're talking to the, we're talking, the church is talking in the preface to the Father who was talking to Jesus. And we, the church, have heard it. And we're giving him thanks for that. And we're sort of in our prayer, we're saying, and we understand what you are up to. All that's seen. We're giving you thanks because you did this. And we, you did it so that we might come to believe in your word dwelling among us. And by the spirits descending in the likeness of a dove, we might know that Christ, your servant, has been anointed with the oil of gladness and sent to bring good news to the poor. Christ, your servant, the preface calls him. Where did it get that word servant? It got that from the first reading. Behold my servant, my chosen one, my beloved, whom I uphold, upon whom I put my spirit. This is that beautiful Eucharistic language. It's not scripture, but it's echoing, echoing the scriptures and, and thereby forms the church's prayer. Shall we uh, look at John's material, the evangelist John? Yeah, we can. Before we do that, can I just point something out really quick? Yeah. It's from your, um, from your homily that you sent us from 2005. You uh -huh. talked about how all of the pieces together that are not only in the scene of, of the baptism, but you bring in text from Isaiah and a little bit from the 29th Psalm that is read um, and sung in that, that day in that liturgy and how it all, it all clashes into a storm, into a perfect storm, a majestic and mighty perfect storm. Then you say that this is this pattern of Jesus' baptism is also the pattern pattern of our baptism, that Jesus' death and resurrection, which is, and then you say, which is to say that Jesus' death and resurrection is the pattern of our baptism. And then we, we talked about this more in the last, last time we recorded, so a couple of episodes ago. In baptism, we go down with Christ into the waters of death and drown our sins in those waters. And because we have gone down with Christ, we also come, come up from the waters together with him and here 
marvelous and majestic, the Father's voice directed to us as well, beloved, in whom I, will, I am well pleased. And we hear that in the depths of each of our hearts. There's just, yeah, there's a lot in that, in that that resonates with me. And also John the Baptist, uh, I forget now, which I think it might have been in Matthew, that he tries to, he tries to stop him from, from being baptized. And there may be that, that um, interior obstacle within us to want to prevent Jesus' baptism from entering into our lives and then from us to entering into the, into his baptism and, and um, either A, being baptized itself, or B, if already baptized, then, as Caleb said, coming to a deeper and deeper understanding and therefore deeper and more real life into the life of the sun. Yeah, that's, uh, that's wonderful stuff. I just had the idea that maybe uh, after we're about to run out of time here, I see maybe though that we could, um, at the end of this episode, Brother Israel and I could do this. I, I'll just uh, re- record that homily as a conclusion to this day's session. Wouldn't that be good to do that, I think? That'd be great. It, yeah. it, it does. It brings a lot of themes together. Uh, but you can see also that, uh, gee, what a wealth of material we're dealing with here. And, uh, I don't think we should start in on John because there's too much. We can do that in a, in a future episode. Uh, but uh, oh, I wish we had more time, you know, because we're hot on the trail of, of a lot of stuff here. And uh, we'll have to remind ourselves that next time we meet uh, of all that we already talked about. Well, I mean, I think this has been a good discussion of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and, uh, and well, we'll just, uh, uh, maybe we'll do John on the next episode, or maybe something else will happen, and we'll do that, we'll see, uh, we're theologians, so we may have to face it, a different question, in a different way. We'll, we'll be led by the Spirit. Yeah, that's right. Driven by the Spirit. <laughs> and, yeah, written, written and directed. we hope you've enjoyed this episode of theology at the eucharistic table podcast remember to leave us a review on itunes which helps those who are searching for content similar to ours to find our show to like and share our facebook page to subscribe to our newsletter at theology at mountangel.com that's theologyatmtangel.com. And to tell your friends about our podcast, especially the seminarians, priests, and seminary professors whom you know. Above all, we ask you to pray for us seminarians, priests, monks, and professors at Mount Angel Abbey and Seminary, and to take the content from this episode into your own prayer. Until next time. Mm-hmm.